Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. In just a bit, we'll talk about a new memorial to victims of gun violence. Just to see the stories of all all of these young people that we have talked to their mothers, fathers, grandparents, or uncles or aunts, it was overwhelming. It really was. You saw parents who were in different stages. Some were crying. You know, some were happy just to see that their child wasn't forgotten. But first, new numbers from the city of Chicago show that traffic fatalities are down. But that good news is offset by the fact that every fatality is a crushing loss to family and friends. And two women, a biker and a pedestrian, were struck and killed by trucks in Chicago over the past few weeks. Mary Wisniewski is Reset's transportation contributor and a Chicago Tribune columnist. She talks about the particulars of these accidents and how the city is trying to reduce these kinds of tragedies through the Vision Zero program. Now, the Vision Zero program is the city's program to try to reduce traffic deaths and serious injuries to zero by 2026. This is part of an international movement. And the way they're trying to do it is through changes to the way the curbs look, changes to traffic speeds, working with the police on different ways of educating people. And so the numbers have dipped. They've gone from 108 in the first 10 months of 2017 when they started the Vision Zero program uh, to 77 Uh, so far in the first 10 months of this year. But as you said, these kinds of traffic deaths really spell out how difficult this is going to be because there's so many different factors that go into a crash. And what do we know about the details of those fatalities? The fatality that happened last week was on Milwaukee Avenue, and uh, a a woman named Carla Aiello, who was a high school counselor, uh, was bicycling south along Milwaukee, and a dump truck turned that was going right turned into her. The truck driver was ticketed. He got a ticket for an illegal right turn. You're supposed to look to make sure that there's no one in the bike lane when you turn. One witness told me, though, that he didn't see how the truck driver could have seen this young woman. So this is just a a terrible tragedy. And then the other one you referred to was a pregnant data scientist who was killed in a very high crash area in the uh, near north side where the, um, the lanes are very wide. There's a lot of cars that are approaching highway speeds on streets that people are trying to cross. How have those deaths galvanized biking and pedestrian safety advocates? People are really up in arms about trying to make things safer, trying to create new rules about uh, how to control trucks on the road. And I, I, I would like to turn this part over to Mel because she, the Active Transportation Alliance has some specific recommendations about that. And we're talking about Melody Geraci. She's Interim Executive Director for the Active Transportation Alliance. Melody, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jen. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in light of these most recent fatalities. There's always, always a visceral reaction among folks who, particularly who walk and bike around the city because you can really relate to that kind of tragedy. So we're hearing from a lot of people. What we believe is that you can engineer good behavior on the roads. And if roads are built with spaces and protections for everybody, walkers, bikers, people who you know are on transit, who are driving, that you can reduce a lot of these, um, these tragedies in a lot of ways. And tell us more about the Active Transportation Alliance sure. and the work you do. Active Trans is a nonprofit Uh, advocacy organization, member-based. We've been around since 1985, and we advocate for walking, biking, and public transportation because we believe they make communities healthier, safer, and more equitable. Now, as we heard from Mary there, these two fatalities, one, um, a truck 
making a right-hand turn, the other someone crossing a street in a high mm-hmm. uh, traffic area. When you think about the infrastructure of the city and improvements that could be made to make it safer for bikers and pedestrians, what are some of those top-level recommendations? Sure. So uh, we know how to do this. This is not a mystery. There's some great data and some research behind the types of facilities that do protect everybody on the road. So we're talking about bike lanes, but not just bike lanes with a painted stripe on the road. We need protection, a physical barrier, a curb, bollards, something that would alert a driver that they are crossing into a bike lane or protect that cyclist. Mm -hmm. In terms of crossing streets, that's the place where pedestrians are most at risk of being struck by a car. We'd like to shorten the crossing distance oftentimes. Um, So as Mary mentioned, bumping out the sidewalk so that, you know, if you're, you can envision a, a parking lane on a street, if you take the sidewalk and pull it out a little bit so that the distance across the street is less. High visibility crosswalks, um, great countdown pedestrian signals are wonderful. They help everybody, even drivers, to know when they should uh, slow are, down. There are a lot of crosswalks that have um, the, the standing stop sign in the middle that says, mm-hmm. stop when you see a pedestrian crossing mm-hmm. and I'm someone who's on the road a lot, and I have to say, I often see those signs taken as as suggestions, not mm-hmm. actually people not actually stopping right. um, when someone's about to enter that crosswalk right. or is even in the crosswalk, but a car is coming from the from the other right. side. Those signs are designed to educate and raise awareness because it is the law in Illinois that all vehicles must stop not just yield, but stop for a pedestrian in the crosswalk, whether the pedestrian is in the right or the wrong, crossing against the signal or crossing legally, it doesn't matter. You often see those signs mowed down, too. Um, (laughs) You you, you see them flattened on the street because people disregard them so regularly. Mary, catch us up on on the uh, Vision Zero project here in the city. Um, As you said, this is an international endeavor, but where does the city stand on its progress? Dave Smith of the Chicago Department of Transportation, I asked him about these new numbers, and he says that he's optimistic that the city can do this. They can get down to zero fatalities by 2026 because everything they're doing is about changing the culture about getting around. They're they're looking at high crash areas. They're putting those, not the, the pedestrian improvements and the curb improvements in high crash areas, which tend to be in, um, in on the south side and the west side in Belmont and Cragen. And the other thing is that when you're talking about engineering for safety for pedestrians, engineering for the most vulnerable users on the road, that's something different. That's something, it's a mindset. And uh, Ian Savage, who I talked to at Northwestern University, professor of economics there, says that it's it's about changing the culture. It's a way of rallying the troops that roads used to not be designed for pedestrians. And, uh, and well, maybe they were way in the past and then they were designed for cars and now they're being looked at for design for pedestrians again. And changing the culture is going to take some time. Melody, where does Active Transportation Alliance stand on Vision Zero? Well, we are uh, big proponents of Vision Zero. We think it's a bold plan that the city has put forth. We think that we need to do a lot better um, and advance the changes and the the reforms that have been suggested in the plan uh, much more quickly. We're asking for a $20 million safe roads fund set aside in the uh, city's budget annually that would go directly and specifically for these types of improvements. Right now, there is not a specific set aside fund. Well, one of the things I've noticed is, and when we do transportation segments, especially about bicyclists, is that there seems to be this tension about how cars and bikes exist on the road together. And we actually got a call from Mike and Rosalind who wanted to know, would it be safer if bicyclists rode in the opposite direction of traffic? He says it's how it used to be in the 1960s when he was Mm -hmm. a kid. 
taught to math? I remember being taught that same thing in school, ride against traffic. It is actually the opposite now. Mm -hmm. um, it's You are supposed to ride in the direction of traffic. There are cases for both. You know, there are contraflow bike lanes that are in the city on Dearborn, for example, that are working quite nicely. We're seeing a lot more adherence to traffic laws by both cars and bicyclists in that area because of the bike signals. Um, the city's measured this stuff. But um, yeah, Mary's right. It's, it's going to take a paradigm shift. Let's talk about economics, Mary. Um, you've been following um, another story, and that's the pushback over the city's rideshare tax. What have you been hearing there? There's a group of about 30 South and West Side ministers who went to City Hall to complain about the rideshare tax because they say it's going to hurt low-income people because uh, people on the South and West Sides were not getting good taxi service and that this has been a big boon for them. It's been a blessing and that they're going to be able to take, you know, that, that if the rideshare tax goes up, that they're going to be hurt. The city is saying this is absolutely misinformation because most of the people in the South and West Side and the neighborhoods in general take rideshare neighborhood to neighborhood. You know, they're going to the doctor's office, they're going to the grocery store, and more than half of them use the shared rides, which would actually see a decrease in the tax mm -hmm. so that they would actually get a discount. And so there's been a lot of, and the ministers are echoing claims that are being made by the rideshare companies, and the city is trying to counter that. Mel, your thoughts? We are for the ride-hailing fee increase because, as Mary mentioned, it's it's directly proportionate to the negative impacts that are being made by ride-hailing, the congestion downtown, the... Um, you know, the, the pullovers and, and the, um, the different types of safety problems that are happening. So it's really the trip downtown and in between, you know, in the central business district that those fees are going to go up the most. And honestly, the, the revenue in part is going to go to improving bus service. So we, you know, we really believe that, that improving bus service is the real way to assist South and West Side families. Well, and that brings me to a larger question um, about infrastructure in the city, whether, you know, it's the ride-share tax and increasing bus access or it's improving bike lanes and walking paths for pedestrians. Mary, the money question always seems to be part of this. How does the city pay for these improvements um, in, in transportation? The city gets a certain amount of money to pay for road improvements, to pay for train improvements and that sort of thing. And what the city has to look at now is how can we do this in a way that's equitable to everybody? How can we do this in, for the people who have to drive in a car? Maybe they, you know, they're not physically able to ride a bicycle or maybe it's difficult mm -hmm. for them to get around on transit. And also, But also looking at how can we make this better for everybody. So one of the things they're looking at is vehicle speeds. When you have congestion, that reduces vehicle speeds and that causes people to get off the bus. And that takes away a, a good option for many, many people. And so they're trying to find ways, you know, what, what's the most efficient way that we can move people around? And they figure that if we reduce congestion, it's going to make things better for public transit. And it's going to make things better for everybody. Mary Wisniewski is Reset's transportation contributor. And Melody Geraci is interim director of the Active Transportation Alliance. According to data from the Chicago Police Department, the city has seen 438 homicide victims this year. There have also been 2,262 shooting victims this year. 
We hear grim statistics of gun violence daily. Now a new memorial, the Gun Violence Memorial Project, is honoring gun violence victims through an installation that displays the personal items of victims of gun violence, objects like driver's licenses, graduation tassels, hair clippers. The aim is to memorialize the victims and avoid desensitization from the barrage of statistics. The memorial installation is now on display at the Chicago Cultural Center. It will be up through January 1st. And here with me in studio to talk about the project are both of its founders, Annette Nance Holt. She's the mother of Blair Holt, who was lost to gun violence. She's also a co-founder of Purpose Over Pain and the first deputy fire commissioner of Chicago Fire Department. Also with us, Pamela D.M. Bosley, mother of Terrell Bosley, who was lost to gun violence. She's co-founder of Purpose Over Pain and the violence prevention manager of the Brave Youth Leaders of St. Sabina Church. And joining us over the phone is Ja D. Williams, Senior Associate with Mass Design Group and the project manager of the Gun Violence Memorial Project. And Annette begins by talking about what got her started with the project. What got me started was the fact that we were losing so many people or so many young people in Chicago. Pam and I were invited to go to the grand opening of the Lynching Memorial and Legacy Museum in Alabama, actually in Montgomery, in April. I think it was like 2018. And so we went to this breakfast that was hosted by Michael Murphy, who was head of Mass Design, and we heard him talking. And we had always talked back and forth, Pam and I, about we need something to bring attention to gun violence, how big of a problem it is, and how it's taken our youth. And we listened to Michael, and we just felt something. There was so much passion that Michael expressed, and we could tell he was a good person. So after it was over, Pam and I met with him, showed him pictures of our boys, Blair and Terrell, and we talked about what we do in Chicago and how bad the problem is and how we had looked for someone who would take this on and do it. You know, he became very emotional, and he said, I want to talk to you. And we gave him our cards, and he followed up, and here we are today. You know, so many people tell us they're going to do something. He actually did something. Mm -hmm. He cared about what we were talking about which is national. It's not just in Chicago, but the individual daily shootings are such a big problem in America. Pamela, tell us more about the work you do in Purpose for Pain. Yes. Well, we are we're a group of parents who our children's lives was ended by um, violence, mainly gun violence. So what we do is we try to support parents that end up in this unfortunate situation like us. The first year when Terrell was murdered in 2006, I tried to take my life twice. Mm-hmm. So we understand um, the pain of burying a child. So we try to support each other. We stand and fight for common sense gun measures, and we uh, mentor young people. The support piece is a big piece uh, for Purpose Over Pain. We have two locations to support parents. We have a location on the south side, which is at St. Sabina, and we have a a second location that we just started on the west side because, as you know, on the city in Austin, the violence is just out of control, too. And actually, we we do different things, like for our support piece around the holiday season. It's real, real. It's hard for us. So we're putting up a tree of love on behalf of the parents. So the goal is to support one another. How did the two of you get connected in that? <laughs> when my son Blair was killed, I was out the door right away with Reverend Jackson and Father Michael Flager, which I belong to St. Sabina Church. I was doing a lot of interviews. I was on VON, a lot of the radio stations in the paper talking about, you know, Blair, who was a good kid. And Pam heard me. And so I was at a rally one day and Pam approached me. And ever since then, we've been together 
And, you know, I always thought I was looking for a mother like me who lost her only child. I said, nobody can relate to me who has other kids because they got something to go on for. But God put Pam in my life, and I tell you, it's not a day we really don't talk or think about something we need to do or communicate because our passion is stopping the gun violence. No parent should go through what we're going through. I want to turn to Ja Williams, Senior Associate with Mass Design Group and the Project Manager of the Gun Violence Memorial Project. And Ja, I just want you to describe the installation force for people who haven't seen it. It's four glass houses situated at the ground floor of the Cultural Center there in Chicago. Each house is made of 700 bricks, 700 being the number of Americans that are killed due to gun violence on a weekly basis. And so you have this white wood lattice work that creates the 700 bricks enclosed on both sides with glass. And you're able to walk in and out of each house. And uh, within the houses, there are objects that we have received from family members of gun violence victims. And so we put out a call to ask various family members to contribute an object on behalf of their loved one that has been taken due to gun violence. And we've installed those objects you know, spread across the four houses and then included the name as well as the year of birth and the year of death of that individual. Annette, did you submit a belonging? I submitted Blair's junior high school picture because he was 16, and that was the last picture he took. And actually, he's like, Ma, I don't want that picture. But when he was killed, I had already ordered the picture. Also, his Julian High School ID, because he went to Percy L. Julian High School in the city, and he loved high school, and he loved the experience. Also, I submitted a CD that he had made because he wanted to be in the music business, but he wanted to get a degree so that he could manage it. So I submitted things that were very meaningful to him, and um, I hope it represents something, you know, to people who see it and go, wow, these were actually people who lived. Because we hear so many stories of it. I think people become numb to the fact that gun violence is happening every day, all the time, especially in big cities. You know, and we just need people to realize you got to get involved or you too. And we were involved before our children were, were murdered. We were involved with young people and people just have to get involved to help us turn this narrative around. Pamela, what about you? Did you submit? Yes, object? I did. I submitted a picture of Terrell because I wanted people to understand that he wasn't just another number with a tragic end. So it's a picture of Terrell. He has a tiny, he loved music. So he played a bass uh, guitar. So I had to submit, I submitted a tiny bass guitar, some drums because he was into music. And I placed his driver's license in there, a copy of his driver's license because he loved to drive. So um, I'm hoping that people go by, you know, Chicago Culture Center and, and see that these are children and they, they lives, they was somebody. I mean, there's something really powerful, Ja, about having tangible evidence of a life. It's not a number. You see a picture. You see something that person loved. As you were creating this project, talk about the experience you were trying to create for people who, who go see the memorial. The first priority for us was that we were able to figure out a way to represent the enormity. We wanted people to be able to under, understand the numbers, of course, but our priority was how do we individualize those numbers? Because we did not want people to walk into the exhibit or to experience our contribution um, to the biennial and just say, okay, these are statistics, I get it, the numbers are overwhelming. We wanted to figure out a way for people to walk through the houses and say, oh no, like this is, this is a person, this is a story, you know, I'm able to empathize with this, I'm able to see myself in that. And so 
that was really a priority for our design team. And once we decided on asking people to contribute individual objects, then of course the task became, okay, well then how do we present these objects? How do we protect them? Of course, making sure that people can't just like walk through and touch them, keep them visible. Uh, and then of course, ultimately represent the numbers. And so that's how we decided on the form in the way that it is. The other thing I'll say is that the form of the house itself uh, is a very familiar form. It's something that people can immediately recognize. And so they're not intimidated by it. They're not confused by it. It's it's not an abstract form. It's something that everybody is familiar with. And so people feel more comfortable approaching it. But there's also a layer of the domesticity of the gun violence epidemic and how it really impacts us at home. And that's something that we wanted to reference in in the form of the house as well. I want us to listen to another participant in the project who left us a message. She lost her son. Let's listen. I'm Deborah Mosley Bennett, the mother of Ajibawo Bennett. I live in Beverly. My family chose to participate in the Gun Violence Memorial Project to celebrate Ajibawo's life. We placed a number of items in the memorial, including a picture of him with his young daughters, a piano, a djembe drum, a gym shoe, a computer part, and a poem by a dear friend of his. These items represent Ajibawo's talents and loves, his family, music, gym shoes and basketball, and his IT profession. The poem represents how much he was loved. Unfortunately, he felt he needed a gun to protect himself on the streets of Chicago. I tried to dissuade him from getting one with arguments about jeopardizing his daughter's safety and how he'd be irreparably changed if he killed someone, even in self-defense. Never did I think he would use it to take his own life. We are also participating in the memorial to raise awareness about the gun violence crisis in the United States, be it community violence, school shootings, domestic violence, domestic terrorism, or suicide, which I have learned is increasing among young people, including young black men. The memorial is a physical representation of this crisis. We hope it will move people to act to address it. Ja, it's worth noting that the majority of U.S. gun deaths, according to the Pew Research Center data from 2017, are suicide deaths. Um, How have you been reaching out to families, especially around a subject that is this sensitive and encouraging them to participate? Our outreach is first and foremost filtered by or uh, initiated by organizations such as Purpose Over Pain. And so one of our project partners is Every Town for Gun Safety. And here locally in Boston, we've been working very closely with the Lewis D. Brown Peace Institute. And so working with these organizations who are already doing this work in this space and are familiar with the survivor networks, we ask them to first reach out to the families to notify them about the project and ask them to participate. Once we then have made that initial contact and families have said, yes, okay, I'm going to contribute an object, we then organize these Remembrance Object Collection events where we go to a city. So we've done D.C., Chicago, and now Boston. And, you know, we set up number of hours a day, four to five hours per day, about three to four days, depending on the availability of the space. And we allow for as much time as needed for that family to process you know, whatever it is, wherever they are in their grieving or mourning process. We've had some families who are very uh, brief with their interaction with us. They take five minutes, they give us the object, they sign the forms, and they they go on about their business. We've had other families 
who have taken about 45 minutes to transfer the object over to us because they're at a different stage in their grieving and their mourning process. And so the answer to your question is kind of twofold. It's one, we rely on the work of the organizations such as Purpose Over Pain to help us to have a trauma-informed process for collecting these objects. And then our team has you know, done our due diligence to ensure that we are allowing for enough time for the families to be able to process the release of the object. Annette and Pamela, I'm wondering what it's been like for you to actually go to the memorial, what that experience has felt like. I think it was just so emotional because we talk to parents all the time, you know, offering support um, when we first meet them. And just to see the stories of all all of these young people that we have talked to their mothers, fathers, grandparents or uncles or aunts. It was overwhelming. It really was. You saw parents who were in different stages. Some were crying. You know, some were happy just to see that their child wasn't forgotten. A lot of different emotions around what you feel when you come to this exhibit. But the one thing that it should do is move you or move anybody who comes to visit to make a change, to make a difference. Pamela? I was nervous when I first walked in because I didn't know what to expect. It's a place where actually parents came together to support one another. And we all had different houses. It was four houses. So as, on that particular day, when we all came together. We all was like, this is my house. Come and see my house. So at the end of the day, the, the security had to put us out because we all felt like that was, you know, of course, our children's belongings was there and um, we wanted to stay. Where are you finding hope these days in, in your work? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I yeah, would, go for it. Well, I would say all my hope lies in God and my faith, because I think without that, it would be hard for me to even stand. And I think seeing other people like Father Michael Flager, like uh, Michael Murphy, people like that who come and help us fight and stand with us. And I mean... It takes so much just to make it through this. Pam talked about, you know, wanting to kill herself. You know, losing the only child is a whole different level. And it's just been my faith, I got to say, in meeting other people like me who are willing to step up and, you know, be counted in this fight against gun violence. Pamela, what about you? I I believe, um, of course, God gives me strength every single day. And I fight for my other two children, um, praying that they live. But... um, I have to remain hopeful in order for me to continue to do what I do. Actually, on my ride over here today, I was talking to a mom whose son was killed this week, um, last Thursday. And uh, they're trying to fly her back to Mississippi. So I was trying to talk to her and trying to see how we can help her. So that's unfortunately our once or twice a week purpose over pain. We see phone calls and and it makes you feel like it's not going to change. But I have to believe in God, believe God. Got us here for our purpose, and, and things is going to change. But we just got to continue to fight and just stand together and bring about change. And should I talk about what happens to the memorial after January 1st? Chicago Architecture Biennial actually closes on January 5th. And so from there, the mass design team, we are working with Every Town for Gun Safety, as well as the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., to move the um, houses there to be on exhibit and on display for the remainder of 2020. And while it's there, we will be working on a national campaign in order to begin to start to place the houses in multiple cultural institutions and art institutions across the country. 
That was the Gun Violence Memorial Project's Annette Nance Holt, mother of Blair Holt and co-founder of Purpose Over Pain, Pamela D. M. Bosley, mother of Terrell Bosley and also a co-founder of Purpose Over Pain, and Ja Williams, senior associate with Mass Design Group. The Gun Violence Memorial Project is currently installed at the Chicago Cultural Center through January 5th. Thank you all for being here with us. Thank you for having us. And that's today's reset. Hey, please drive carefully and it's going to turn really, really cold tonight. So look in on your neighbors who might need a checkup or a helping hand. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and let's talk again soon. Thank you.